Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Zoom. Is it virtual? <laughs> yeah. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you two? Oh, we're tip top. You're out here Good. in Colorado, aren't you? I'm in San Diego. Oh, San Diego. I thought I saw some that yeah. were up in um, like Lafayette. I was out in Aspen for an event. Oh, okay. Um, maybe three months ago because Colorado legalized mushrooms. So we were doing like a kind of business mastermind with a twist. Gave everyone microdoses, and we were like an hour outside Aspen at a place called Bayul in the on the frying pan river there. Ooh, very very nice. Uh, is Colorado kind of setting the stage for other states to kind of move in that direction? More or less. They so the first state to legalize psilocybin was Oregon, um, and they have like a fully regulated model. So you have to get you know certified by the state. You have to do it at a service center. Uh, there's a, a few more regulations. With Colorado, they passed something called the Natural Medicine Health Act, which essentially legalizes all mushrooms, ayahuasca, San Pedro for personal use. And then they're putting a more regulated system in at the end of 2024. So um, and a, a similar bill was just attempted in California, but it was vetoed by Gavin Newsom. So uh, yeah, Colorado is definitely like pioneering the way, much like they did with cannabis. Because um, Denver was the first city to decriminalize mushrooms back in like, I think, 2018 or 2019 is when they did it. Wow. Why do we feel like um, this is a dangerous drug that's up there with like the other schedule ones where in history, like these psychedelics have been used in different forms, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. What, what was kind of like, cause it seems like in the forties and fifties, it was starting to make its way back into like um, more testing and, being able to be utilized as almost like a medicine and then like what kind of happened that made it like people to get scared and make it look dangerous yeah so um as you mentioned we've been using working with psychedelics for thousands of years across cultures across every continent the ancient greeks ayahuasca in the amazon and ancient india um and in 1938 lsd was invented and like you mentioned, you know, over a thousand clinical papers were published on its efficacy in the 50s for addiction, depression, anxiety, autism, like anything you can imagine. It was that was like mental health related. It was it was it was researched. And then in the 60s, it went from being just research to, you know, basically the counterculture. So LSD was being handed out everywhere and not microdoses, very high doses. And it was it was tied to the anti-war movement uh, against Vietnam, and so the Nixon administration, which continued through the Reagan administration, implemented a very good propaganda campaign campaign, essentially saying, "Look, these are dangerous; these are harmful. Um, we need to make these illegal as soon as possible." And so, in 1968, the United States made LSD and psilocybin mushrooms uh, illegal, and you know, a lot of it was propaganda. There was a pretty strong association. These are drugs. So people associated and have associated psychedelics with things like heroin and cocaine and methamphetamines, when in fact, 
if you just have a little bit of nuance in education, it's clear that these are very different. They're anti-addictive. They're uh, psilocybin is the safest drug, legal or illegal, um, that we have available to us. So uh, it's unfortunate, but you know, in the last few years now, we've seen a, a major turn of the tide in terms of education and research on this. So we're we're getting back to a point now where you know Oregon is legalized, Colorado is legalized, and many other states are are considering it. Well, the big reason we wanted to have you on is that we know that in the fire service our members are using this stuff. And I think, well, because technically we shouldn't be using any of it. Um, cause it's a federally, you know, even though our state it's legal. Um, and we wanted to kind of educate those folks on like what it is, how you should use it. And like, if you have any suggestions on like protocols or things to stay away from who shouldn't be using it. Um, uh, I think that the people who are using it here and I'm just speaking generally, are using it and not knowing exactly what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, I'm happy to like go through all of that, you know, like in particular with psilocybin mushrooms, you know, I have another friend who's in Vancouver who works in this space, runs a public company. And he's mentioned to me that a lot of the people in the police force are now working with psilocybin. And it's become a little bit of like a courage and bravery thing, like, how high of a dose can you do? How deep can you go? But I, I think, <laughs> well, if you get firefighters, under, anything, we want to try and break it. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. But underneath that, I think it's like at the, at the end of the day, a lot of these people in service positions, whether it's, you know, firefighters or policemen or EMTs, like their, their day-to-day can be quite traumatic. They're dealing with very stressful, potentially traumatic situations. And so I think underneath that, it's also like, how do, how do we heal from some of these challenges that we've had to confront and face, whether it's gunfire or whether it's, you know, going into a burning house and saving someone who's dying or whatever that is, like mushrooms uh, can help with uh, kind of coming to terms with that, I think. Because right now it seems like our only outlets, or I should say not our only, but the outlets that are used most are alcohol, which is arguably uh-huh. the worst thing you could be doing. Um, or going to talk therapy. And those kind of are the two avenues that we have. And it seems like we're missing the boat on the potential benefits of this, but no one's really teaching folks how to do that appropriately. So if, if you were going to say this to a, uh, a fifth grader, like in trying to, to describe what psilocybin actually does, like what is the mechanism that it's using? There's like a, a more spiritual esoteric but there's also just, you know, from a neurobiological. So I'll start with the neurobiological because uh, fundamentally that's a little bit of an easier access point. Um, so essentially what's happening in the brain when we, when we take mushrooms. So a lot of times when we have traumatic experiences or when we struggle with depression or addiction, the, the way that the brain is communicating um, across the hemispheres it starts to sort of die down and the connections start to get lost. And so when we work with something like psilocybin mushrooms, all of a sudden those connections are brought online again. And what that means is uh, there's a, there's a thing called happening called neuroplasticity where all of a sudden our brain becomes uh, more malleable. We can learn easier. We can um, have, pretty deep self-reflection. 
And when that occurs, there's often this opening where we can, I would say, confront difficult or challenging experiences that we've gone through. So if we look at the brain as like the conscious, the subconscious and the unconscious, the conscious brain is like the tip of the iceberg. And when we take something like psilocybin, all of a sudden we can access things that are beneath the surface. Um, it could be memories, it could be stories, it could be traumatic experiences. And so when we have that window open up, all of a sudden, these things that kind of dictate our conscious mind, these traumatic experiences or challenging experiences, we can actually go into them, we can process them. There's there's something that happens called catharsis, where there's like a release of them, and that allows it to become more... Uh, you know, integrated, if you will. Um, the other aspect is, uh, you know, when it comes to like a spiritual experience, whatever, you know, re religion or, or no religion, when people work with high doses of psilocybin, they experience something beyond themselves. They experience what some people might call God or source or the mystery and that in itself can be very healing because in, uh, you know, on an everyday basis, we we kind of feel like we're stuck in the matrix, if you will, and that can be quite stressful and meaningless. And so when people work with high doses of mushrooms, all of a sudden they tap into something that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And they've shown in research that tapping into that thing has tangible real world benefits. People, after they come out of these experiences, they're more grateful, they're more connected to their partner or their kids or their parents. Um, their mood is better. They are more sort of optimistic about life. And so there's a lot of, I would say, tangible benefits from especially these higher dose experiences where people have sort of a, a spiritual opening, if you will. What you what would be considered like a high dose? Like what is the, the dosing that would be a micro dose and what would be a dosing that's like that heroic dose? Yeah. So I'll start with microdosing a little bit. Cause I know that's quite in vogue and a lot of people are interested in it. So microdosing is taking a very low dose of a psychedelic, what I would call like a sub intoxicating dose. So it's not enough to have any sort of change in visual perception or auditory perception um, people just notice that when they take a low dose of psilocybin, anywhere from like 100 milligrams to 300 milligrams, they have a little bit of a better mood. They have a little bit more energy. They're a little bit more present. So that sort of um, the mind that is just going, going, going tends to tends to slow down a little bit. And people will do that like two or three times a week for anywhere from 30 to 60 to, to 90 days. And they'll notice that you know, after they microdose two or three times a week for an extended period of time, um, they start to notice these sort of cumulative benefits of, of working with, let's say, a low dose of mushrooms on a pretty consistent basis. So that would be anywhere from 100 to, again, 300 milligrams of psilocybin. Then we would go into what I would call more of like a, 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 a medi dose, a museum dose. That's where you feel it, you notice it. It's not overwhelming, but there could be deeper emotions that start to come up or deeper processing. And that can be anywhere from like 500 milligrams to a gram of psilocybin mushrooms. Once 
once you start to go anywhere from like a gram to two grams, even upwards of four to five grams, that's where I would consider it to be a higher dose. And the caveat being everyone has a different tolerance, right? So the dose level that might work for you may be different from the dose level that might work for me. And that has partly to do with body weight and size, but it also has a lot to do with how neurotic someone is. Um, you know, if they have a lot of trauma that they're working through, if they have a history of being on Prozac or Zoloft, certain antidepressant medications that can also blunt the response. So I would say just to be on the safe side, like a higher dose would start at a gram, but for most people, it's going to be anywhere from two to three up to four grams. And the, the final thing, which is a bit more advanced, is with psilocybin mushrooms, there's like a bunch of different strains um, and different strains have different potencies. And so once the, the most common strain is called golden teachers, and that tends to be pretty soft and sort of nice, but there's other strains like penis envy, even a strain called ghost and tidal wave. Ghost. And the I don't think those, I'd want to take ghost. I don't think ghost is the most potent. It's like it's like a gram of ghost is equivalent to like three grams of golden teacher. So it partly has to do with the strain that you're using as well. So all of that to say is what I what I typically recommend for folks is like start low and go slow. Like you can't take less, but you can definitely take more. Uh, um, and so rather than you know trying to be too macho about it right? Like if you're looking at a high dose, start with two grams, two and a half grams, see how that feels. And ideally the first few times you do it, just have like a friend or a sitter who is there, who's present with you. Because if the experience becomes intense, overwhelming a lot, it's just helpful to have someone who can help you to calm down and breathe and take care of you. Um, because, you know, especially at these higher doses, it's not all rainbows and butterflies necessarily. I think that's what kind of almost confuses me is that we have this and this podcast is majority for public safety. We have all of these, you know, demons and scars. And then you take this medicine that has the uh, ability to send you into the most terror that you've ever been into. Like, what's the benefit of us doing that? Uh it's a great question. So, um, the, what I often say is, especially for these high doses of mushrooms, the main thing that's required is a sense of courage and bravery. And it's, it's a different type of courage than running into a, you know, house that's burning down or, you know, having a standoff with someone in the, you know, police force. It's more of an internal courage that we have to be willing to face kind of our deepest, darkest demons, if you will. And probably the best quote is Carl Jung, who was this Swiss psycho psychologist who started Jungian therapy. He was uh, sort of uh, an early mentor of Freud, but had a very different approach than Freud would often say that you have to face the dragon to get the gold, mm. meaning that the sense of shadow work, doing deeper work, confronting the darkest parts of ourselves is ultimately what leads to a sense of bliss and joy and healing. Um, and I, I mentioned the term catharsis 
before. So if you look at the 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 sort of mechanism of action of Prozac, Zoloft, typical SSRIs, what they do is they blunt the sy symptoms. So if you're feeling depressed, they blunt the symptoms and sort of bring you back to a place that's okay, not great, but okay. And it's sort of like a Band-Aid. You're not getting to the, the root of the thing that's creating the symptoms, but you're addressing the symptoms. Whereas with mushrooms or psychedelics, they like, they get into the thing itself. And often the thing itself that is um, creating the symptoms of depression or addiction or anxiety is underlying trauma. It could be an experience in, 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 in really intense experiences of like sexual assault or, a, you know, alcoholic abuse or other things that have happened, especially in our early childhood. Um, but it could also be little T traumas. Like, you know, I grew up in a pretty religious home. And so I had a lot of shame and guilt, uh, you know, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to hell that I had to work through, or Catholic. I got bullied quite a bit, you know, when I was 11 or 12 Yeah, <laughs> to work through that. So I think inevitably, if someone is doing enough work with mushrooms, they're going to have to face those demons. And that's why it's, it's really helpful to prepare beforehand to journal a little bit to have some sort of self-reflection but to also have like a guide or a facilitator or a friend who can be there with you because if you start to get into these deep and dark places there can be a lot of release of sadness or grief or anger or just emotion and that can be quite overwhelming especially for men who are used to like keeping everything inside you know inside right yeah. to have that big release it's like all of a sudden they're touching into these parts of themselves that they've never really uh, been with or or confronted and if that's not held well it can lead to paranoia it can lead to high levels of anxiety it can lead to a quote-unquote bad trip and that that can be you know potentially detrimental or potentially quite dangerous so it's really critical that especially at higher doses someone does the preparation work before they have a, a guide or a sitter who is there present with them and the the biggest advice or the best advice that i can give is just to I would say surrender to allow whatever needs to come through to come through, to not try to like hold it back, to not try to push it under. If you need to release something, release it. Um, because that's often where the healing comes from when, when working with a uh, psychedelic. I don't know if this falls into the category. Like, would you consider ketamine a psychedelic? Another, another great question. So ketamine is currently legal and available. So anyone at this point in time can basically go into a clinic or even do this remotely and you can get ketamine prescribed off label for pretty much anything. Um, ketamine is technically a disassociative. Uh, it was most, it was first used as an anesthetic and continues to be used as an anesthetic in emergency rooms. Um, but when used at a slightly lower than anesthetic level, it basically, again, it does that thing in the brain where it helps to rewire the brain and create new connections again. So the psychedelic component really comes from like, are you preparing before and are you integrating afterwards? Because the experience can be very deep and profound, but it's not, it, it has a different mechanism of action than mushrooms or ayahuasca. Um, so the answer to that would be, it depends on the context. And if used with a sense of intention, not just like I'm at a party and I want to do a line of ketamine sure, or sure. I want to, you know, do whatever, if it's done in a more sort of healing or therapeutic way, people have really 
profound and healing experiences with it. It's especially good for suicidality, like people who are suicidal. If they do a high dose of ketamine, it's probably the best treatment that we currently have available to interrupt that. Uh, and then it can also be helpful for, you know, depression and trauma and, and things like that. So legally available. Ketamine does have a slightly more uh, kind of uh, addiction tendency. It's active on uh, one of the opioid receptors. So again, people just have to be mindful that if they're working with ketamine to do that only in, let's say, a clinical therapeutic setting, that it's important not to like go too deep and just start doing ketamine every day on your, on, on your own, you know, that can, that can lead to problems. So I, I got a, might be a tough question. You may not know just off the top of your head, but is there any research that uh, has been done regarding those patients with suicidal ideations and sort of, I guess you could call it a conversion rate or something that's, Hey, after they did treatment, those SIs went away. Do, is there any, any studies out there yet that are, uh, I guess valid. Yeah, there's there's been quite a bit of research done in the last I would say 25 years on the mental health applications of ketamine. So the FDA has even approved a patented ketamine that's made by Johnson and Johnson for treatment resistant depression in particular. For suicidality, I don't I don't know the exact numbers, but it's somewhere between 60 and 70% um sort of efficacy um which is quite a bit better than kind of most standard treatments at this point in time. And and I know there's been other research that shows up to 80% of people who work with ketamine have a reduction in symptoms of depression. It doesn't mean that all of them are depression-free necessarily, but up to 80% of people who work with ketamine in a therapeutic setting see a pretty substantial reduction in their symptoms of depression. Um, so there's, yeah, it's, Ketamine is probably one of the best researched because it is legal. Uh, it's a Schedule Three substance, meaning again it can be prescribed off-label, um, and it's the only quote-unquote psychedelic that's currently approved by the FDA for mental health. So I uh, and we did a show about this. I had some depression. Man, it must have been seven or eight months ago now. SI went and did uh, six sessions of ketamine at a clinic and yeah. had that after the first session, um, a complete turnaround in like my mental state. I read a book called consciousness medicine prior to my first, um, ketamine session. Cause I was trying to figure out like what, what in the world am I about to get into? And it talked a lot about how you should go in with intention. The problem that I had was that you go in with this intention and then you're supposed to let go, but you're trying to concentrate on this intention that you had. And so like, what are your suggestions when you're having someone prepare for this experience? How do you maintain the ability to have a plan and then give it up like midway through so you can truly benefit from the practice? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, now you're touching into like the paradox of, of working with psychedelics, right? And it's it's almost like how do how do we what what's the middle way between surrender and focus? Yeah. And the 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 you know, in meditation there's often like a mantra that people may repeat or come back to. And so typically the 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 perspective or advice that I give is one, have that intention maybe be boiled down to a word or just a phrase. And even when you're in this very deep and surrendered experience, 
having just a word or a phrase that you can come back to um, can help sort of be a tether to reality in case things get overwhelming and to root that tether or phrase, ideally in the breath, right? Because a lot of times when you're in these high dose experiences, having the breath to come back to, it's, I do a lot of cold plunging. And so I often talk about how like cold plunging can be a great teacher. Cause when you get in the cold, you're overwhelmed. Your nervous system is like, what is going on? You start to sort of hyperventilate, right? And a lot of the practice in cold plunging is how quickly can you regulate your nervous system to just relax into the overwhelm. And when working with high doses of psychedelics, it's it's very similar. How quickly, if you get into a place of overwhelm, can you re-regulate the nervous system using the breath? And then coming back to that word or phrase that you have as a mantra. And and then the other you know, advice that I offer is like the, the medicine, the psychedelic, whether it's ketamine or mushrooms, they'll give you what you need, not necessarily what you want. So oftentimes when we're preparing for an experience, again, it's coming from the conscious mind. And when you start to open the, the, the doors to the, the subconscious or the unconscious, there may be things that come through that, that you had no awareness of prior to the experience. And so part of the practice is just letting go, surrendering, allowing what, what needs to come will come. Um, and the willingness to sort of, if you have this intention of whatever X, Y, and Z, you know, I want to, I want to heal in the deepest way possible. Or I want to, uh, you know, have that, this memory, I want to have more awareness of it, or I would like to have a better relationship with my spouse, whatever it is that can definitely help to direct the mind, but it's not necessarily a guarantee that like, that's going to be the thing that you actually confront or deal with. Now, a, a, a lot of how this all comes together is in the integration phase. So you went in, you did six ketamine treatments. Some clinics will provide psychotherapeutic support before and after some won't. It's just like you go in, you do the treatment, you go home, go back, do the treatment. And so what I also emphasize is like having a coach or practitioner or therapist who you can unpack this with. That was a because huge, oftentimes that we just yeah. did it halfway through and we could yeah. basically like I would finish and then I would journal afterwards, like what just happened. And then yeah. halfway through, I went over it with him and he kind of described like, Hey, this is probably what that means. And that brought in a whole nother like area of, I don't know, I guess you could call it healing and awareness it, or understanding yeah, awareness. Right? I think that's probably oh, like part of it. That was, yeah. um, because you just kind of feel like you're going crazy sometimes. Uh, and I don't know, it kind of gave validity to the fact that this thing actually worked. Like, even though I'm feeling better, um, it was, uh, a sense of like a loss of self or a loss of ego, I guess mm -hmm. that we feel like we're so in control, especially in our job. We are in control. Right. We are the ones you have that to be. Are, I mean, you yeah. have to be in control, right? Yeah. But it made me option. feel like I'm not in control of anything, which was actually kind of comforting. Um, and it might be the same feeling that people who are very religious might have where they can give it up to whoever they feel like is running the show. Um, but it definitely helped with that. I think you have to have well, that as part of the, the uh, protocol. Well, and, and, you know, faith, whatever type of faith that might be, regardless of whether or not it's religious, faith requires courage, right? So when you, when you start to like unmoor yourself 
from your personality, from this is how I do things. This is who I am. This is the way it happens. It's not, and this is a really important point. It's not like you have to surrender and let go of control in every aspect of your life. Like you said, if you're a firefighter, if you're a you know, police officer, you have to be in control. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a CEO. I have to run my company. I have to be in control, but it's a valuable skill to learn how to let go and to not become attached to, well, if this happens, then I'm going to feel this way or this way. So it's more of, it provides balance. It's a great sort of laboratory to learn how to let go, but by no means does it mean that you have to let go and you know, you have to live in that state of surrender fully. Cause I, I think that's a lot of fear of people who have worked with psychedelics are like, man, if I do this, I'm going to turn into a, like a, a softy. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not going to be able to do and execute and do the things that I need to get done. And what I always say is the, the thing that it will allow is sort of a, a flexibility in how you approach life where you'll just learn that you can approach life in different ways, depending on the context. So if you're fight, you know, if you're in the midst of a fire, you, you have to be in control. You have to know where to go. You have to know what to do. But if you're at home in a relationship, having a conversation with your wife, right. Sometimes it helps to be able to just let go and be like, all right, I'm not going to win this battle. And that's totally okay. Because the, the longer term, is much more important here. It's not about winning everything and being in control of everything. You had mentioned um, that they, some people will do these microdoses for a 90 day cycle. Is there a protocol yeah. for when you should take them? Should you eat with it? Are there contraindications of like, Hey, if you're, if you have these medical problems, you shouldn't do this. Like what's, what's kind of the, uh, the base protocol. The the you might there, give somebody? Yeah. So the, the main contraindication with all psychedelic use is psychosis or schizophrenia. So if someone has a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia, um, they should not touch psychedelics, especially if they're under the age of 26, because the brain hasn't fully formed and it would, they're very likely to potentially catalyze a uh, psychosis or uh, episode of, of schizophrenia. So that I would say is the main, main, main contraindication. And of course, that's only like 1% of people. So it's very rare, but it is a contraindication and something to be mindful of. If someone is on medications, the only medication that is, that is contraindicated with psilocybin mushrooms in particular is lithium. So if someone is taking lithium, you should not be taking psilocybin mushrooms. If you're on Prozac, Zoloft, if you're on an anti-anxiety medication, even things like Wellbutrin, whatever that is, none of those are contraindicated with psilocybin. So you can safely take psilocybin even if you're on Prozac and Zoloft. And a lot of people are working with microdoses to like wean off some of these either antidepressant medications or even ADHD medications because a lot of the side effects of them are quite nasty. Um, so they'll work in conjunction with a medical professional to, to wean off of certain medications. The other thing to be aware of is someone has a, a, you know, a background of addiction, whether it's alcohol or tobacco or, um, you know, cocaine or, you know, methamphetamines, whatever it is, just to be mindful of starting to work with psychedelics because psychedelics can be incredibly healing for addiction, like the clinical research and how useful it is for alcoholism is, you know, outstanding. 
and it is an altered state. And so sometimes if people start to, let's say, take a lot of psychedelics, that can put them back into this sort of seeking mindset of wanting just to escape and disassociate. So those are like the main risks, I would say, or or things to be mindful of. And in terms of a microdosing protocol, there's really two main ones. One is, there's one that's more specific for LSD, <clears throat> and there's one that's more specific for mushrooms. The one with LSD is twice a week for five weeks. Um, and to after, after you do that, to take a break for, you know, two, three weeks to get a sense of your baseline and where you're at. And the reason for that is because if you take LSD more than twice a week, it can be quite stimulating. You can start to tip into manic states. And so if someone is going to microdose with LSD to just do it a couple times a week for five weeks, and then to assess after that point in time, first thing in the morning is always useful because I mean, I, I took a microdose of LSD yesterday and I did it at like 10 30 AM and I was still pretty wired when I was going to bed at like 11 because it lasts about 12 hours, 10 to 12 hours in length. Mushrooms are different. Mushrooms, the main protocol is every other day. Um, and you can do that as long as I would say 90 days. Most people do it maybe 30 to 60 days. And again, first thing in the morning on an empty stomach is ideal. Wait about an hour after uh, the microdose until you eat. And to just okay. set an intention. Why is it? Why, why wait uh, to eat? Does it mess your stomach up or? I, the, the reason I recommend that is because when people are starting to microdose, they often want to feel it a little bit so they know it's working. And if you take a microdose on a full stomach, it's going to impact how quickly the psilocybin gets absorbed. Sure. So I think it's really useful for, for newbies to this first timers to go do it first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, wait until you're like, okay, I feel it a little bit. And then, you know, have your breakfast or eat. A lot of people also, you know, uh, they fast or intermittent fast. So they may not eat until 1 PM and microdosing on an empty stomach first thing in the morning can help to reduce appetite and just generally help people have a little bit more energy, have a little bit of a better mood. So three times a week, every other day, it's not useful to microdose two days in a row because with psilocybin, there's a 48 hour window of short-term tolerance. Meaning if you take the same dose, you know, 8 a.m. on Monday and 8 a.m. on Tuesday, that 8 a.m. Tuesday dose, you're not going to notice anything at all because of that tolerance window. So people often notice that when they take even microdoses, low doses, they'll take it like 8 a.m. on a Monday. And even the next day, they'll notice that their mood is a little bit better, that they're a little bit more present. And then on that Wednesday to do it again. And my advice is always like, have a practice with the microdosing. So in other words, you know, a huge opportunity with psychedelic work is to not necessarily look at, I'm just going to take a microdose like I would Prozac or Zola. I'm just going to take it, see what happens. The, the, the pill that I'm taking will do the work in and of itself. When we're taking low doses of psychedelics, there's more neuroplasticity, meaning we can learn things quicker and we can integrate better patterns and behaviors, better habits. So what I often tell folks is have a journaling practice, have a meditation practice, have a practice of maybe breath work and cold plunging. Do something that's non-psychedelic in conjunction with the microdose, because after you finish that protocol of 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, you don't want to feel as if um, the only reason you're getting better is because you're taking this pill. 
because that creates then a psychological dependency on, okay, the only way I can feel good then is if I keep taking this again and again. The, The whole thing that we're attempting to shift with psychedelic work is realizing that psychedelics are a catalyst. They're an opener. They can help us get out of ruts. But really what helps us to feel great on a consistent basis is good food, good sleep, exercise, sunlight, cold plunging, meditation, breath work, journaling, practices that are non-psychedelic that just help us to regulate our nervous system, that help us to you know lower chronic inflammation, that help us to be more present in relationships. So it's really important that people look at microdosing not as a magic pill, but as a catalyst, and that the real work is integrating patterns and behaviors that will sustain um, a sense of well-being beyond just taking the, the microdose every other day for 30 or 60 days. So then what is the, like, how long would you wait after that 30, 60 or 90 days, like to do that again? I often tell folks like, take a, take two to three weeks off. Some folks will notice, especially if they've been depressed for a long time or they have really bad anxiety, or maybe they're on certain anti, they've been on certain antidepressant medications and they're working with microdosing or psychedelics to get off of them, that the depression will start to come back after two or three weeks or some of the patterns and behaviors that they've started to work through will start to come back. And so the best practice is just to observe and notice, to have a journal, to practice awareness around what is happening, how am I feeling, what's coming back. And then you know, after those two or three weeks, if you're like, this microdosing was really helpful, I wanna do another cycle, then to do another cycle. A lot of people will look at, at microdosing as a prophylactic, and that's a very fancy word for saying it's like, it's something you take to prevent mm-hmm. depression coming back, essentially. Um, and if that's the case, if someone needs that, they need that. You know, some people I know have been microdosing on and off for two, three, four years now. Um, the the only thing to be mindful of is we have quite a bit of data, longitudinal data on, okay, if you take psychedelics, a high dose of a psychedelic once every few months for years and years and years and years, there's no physiological issues. Because microdosing is so new, this really just became a thing in the past decade or so. And because it's so expensive and difficult to do research on psychedelics because they're schedule one, we don't yet have a lot of longitudinal data on, okay, if I'm taking a microdose three times a week for the rest of my life, how does that impact my heart? How does it impact my brain? Uh, my sense is as long as there are breaks that are woven in, that it's perfectly safe and fine. But again, that's just something to be aware of for anyone who's interested in this is all of us who are doing this are, are, are guinea pigs still somewhat because we don't have the longitudinal data on, okay, if I microdose you know, every other day for the rest of my life, how might that impact me? Let's say Tom is taking penis envy. How would he? This guy, see this. You like penis envy, Tom? Is that the? uh, Listen, I'm just out of this three (laughs) strains. I was told that that Craig actually had it. So out of the three strains that you mentioned that I feel like associates with you. (laughs) So um, how would like, how do you take it? Do you? Uh, do you get like asking a, yourself that question? Do you just take, uh, cause I assume like people are growing this themselves and then do they All right, chop before, it up before we get there? Okay. How does this name even come about? That's a great question because the, you actually brought it up in the beginning and I'm thinking, okay, this is a well-marketed name. It you know, is going to market 
a product. Well, okay. So what would your mushroom be called, this... Tom? <laughs> there we go. Yeah. You're looking at a mushroom, I guess. I just, I'm just saying. Right. And then before we move on, sure. What are are there other strands with really creative names such as this? Yeah, like what's the best one you've ever heard? I, I mean, there's one called albino penis envy, which I think takes the cake. Well, that adds up. What's the <laughs> difference between what does an albino penis look different than a regular penis? It's all I white. Mean, it's all white, Tom. That's what albino. Yeah. Means. So even no, there's no yeah. blood flow getting no blood getting, flow. getting down there. Yeah. It's shriveled. <laughs> Al- albino is i think it's a it's like a it's a mix of two strains albino albino penis envy so penis envy was discovered in the 80s in the amazon by a guy named terrence mckenna maybe maybe you've heard of him terrence yeah was like this guy who wrote this book called food of the gods he hypothesized that our ancient ancestors in africa ate mushrooms because that Stone make them better theory. hunters stone ape theory is terrence mckenna yeah, so he spent a lot of time in the Amazon in the 70s, 70s and 80s with his brother, Dennis, who's still alive. Terrence died of brain cancer like in 2000, I believe. And he found this type of mushroom and he brought it back. And now it's mostly just grown. You know, the spores are, they come from labs and you can buy them pretty much anywhere. And the reason it's called penis envy is because it looks like a penis. You know, it's got <laughs> we'll a very put a, thick- we'll put a picture up on our Spotify. <laughs> it's got a very thick stem. Nice. Whereas a lot, a lot of mushrooms lot of tend shaft. to have very thin stems. Yeah. Like very shaft. long shaft. Very long shaft. And you know, with the way that the mushroom is, the roots look like testicles. This is what happens yeah. if you come on a firefighter's podcast. Well, you, I've listened, I'm, you opened. I'm up. here for it. No, I've listened to you on other podcasts, and it's like yeah. doctors, and they're asking very like I'm sure serious questions. Very serious questions. We're the furthest thing from it. <laughs> We're idiots. <laughs> so. uh People find these, um, you said you can like find it anywhere. Do they come as full mushrooms or are they like dried out and capsulized? Like how do they, how does it work? So we, on third wave, we have a mushroom grow kit. So you can go to our website and just order a grow kit and we'll send it to your house anywhere basically in the States besides Georgia, Georgia and Idaho. The, the key though is we don't sell the spores with the grow kit, because that would be illegal. We can only sell the grow kit, but we provide a list of, if you want to buy spores, there's a bunch of places all over the States that will sell you spores of golden teachers or penis envy or tidal wave or Cambodia. There's one called Cambodian. There's one called B plus there's one called, um, ghost, as I mentioned before. So the easiest ones to grow are golden teachers and penis envy. Those are the, I would say those are the two most common. And so once you get the grow kit, buy spores, uh, you can usually grow your own mushrooms in anywhere from six to eight weeks. But what's happening in like places like Colorado and uh, Oregon and really all over the States now is the DEA at the time of this recording is not really looking to um, pursue cases related to mushrooms because of all the research that's coming out. And I think because of the limited, the the, the dwindling resources of the federal government they're spending it more on fentanyl because we have a fentanyl crisis, cocaine, opioids, uh, that, war on, that war on drugs going real well. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not surprised yeah. that they're letting this go. Uh, yeah. So it's just, uh, it's right. kind of like an open market now. Like you can go online and purchase. There are a number of suppliers now that will sell you microdosing supplements that will sell you chocolates that will sell you, you know, mushrooms just to have to your house. So We even have on third wave, not only do we have a grow kit, but we have what we call a sourcing guide. It's like a free PDF. It's like an 80 page guide where if you're like, 
what's legal, what's available, how do I access this? We have a guide there where it's like, here's what you go through. So just to close the loop on your question, if you like grow your own mushrooms, you dry them out, you then, you know, have a food processor or just a, like a blender, you can grind up the mushrooms very easily, and then you can just encapsulate them. So mm. if you want to like make your own microdoses, you just have the powder and get like a capsule machine on Amazon for like 10 bucks. You can buy double zero capsules for like five bucks and you just use that capsule machine with the mushrooms that you've grown or acquired and you can make your own microdoses. You're going to want and, to wash um, that blender real well before your next smoothie. You're going to be on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, with that, it's like, some people will combine them with other herbs. So like functional mushrooms, lion's mane, cordyceps, chaga, reishi are becoming more prominent. Uh, adaptogens like ashwagandha, rhodiola, skullcap. There's other nootropics like long jack, bacopa. So a lot of people will combine other non-psychedelic herbs with the mushrooms because the mushrooms are an amplifier. And so if you want something that's more like focus with the psilocybin, you could combine it with lion's mane, cordyceps, bacopa, long jack, even there's these nootropics called the racetams, anaracetam, paracetam that you can combine it with. So you, outside of just the basics, you can do that. Would you suggest taking it, uh, like I saw some protocols where you would take like a niacin with lion's mane and your whatever microdose you choose. Is there like a benefit to uh, like stacking other yeah, so, so these are essentially called microdosing stacks, right? The most common one is called the Stamets stack, named after Paul Stamets, the mycologist who's been on Joe Rogan and talked a bunch about microdosing and, and mushrooms. And he's actually patented that formulation, niacin, lion's mane, and psilocybin. And the reason he gives for that is because the niacin is a vasodilator, meaning it just opens up the blood vessels. And so by opening up the blood vessels, when you take psilocybin, it helps it to better absorb. The psilocybin helps your brain to better absorb. So his hypothesis is that by combining those three, there's a synergistic effect where it's like one plus one plus one equals 10. Mm. Um, and then lion's mane is great. Lion's mane clinical research has shown that it increases neurogenesis, neuroplasticity by um, producing something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. And so combining those three, the niacin is the vasodilator, makes your brain more willing to absorb. And then combining the psilocybin, the lion's mane just helps with neurogenesis and uh, what we call dendritic, dendritic growth. Again, back to like it's helping the brain make new connections and better connections. So it can be a really great supplement for focus, productivity, learning, uh, you know, all these sorts of things. This is a, this is a big question. I don't, I'm just curious to know your answer because uh, I feel like you are in this space way more than we are. Yeah. It seems like we have this desire to escape as firefighters and just first responders in general, maybe just people in general of, right. I just want to escape. Like, do you have a theory on why that is like, why, why we have this desire just to like, man, I just want to, I want to uh, unplug for a little bit. Or, and have you met anyone who ha is not like that? The I would say the urge to alter our consciousness is like an evolutionary thing. Like mm. humans have been altering their consciousness for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, whether it's with alcohol, tobacco, psychedelics, uh, even things like drumming and other trance rituals. Like we're always looking at how do we alter our state of consciousness? And there's a fine line between altering our state of consciousness and disassociating. 
So there's a fantastic book called Stealing Fire, which you may know about or or or, or have read. And it talks about this sort of altered states economy. So not only can we alter our state of consciousness through psychedelics and plant medicine, through alcohol, cannabis, tobacco, but we can also alter our state of consciousness through video games, through Netflix, through smartphones, right? And so I think now more than ever, there are tools available that make it really easy for people to check out and essentially numb. And uh, that's smartphones, that's video games, that's pornography, that's really shitty food, that's toxic relationships. Because for most people, life is just too difficult to fully confront in its entirety, right? It's just, there's a lot, especially nowadays, it's like, it feels like everything is falling apart. The world is growing increasingly divided. And so we're naturally looking for ways to check out because it's like too much to handle. And what psychedelics do is they allow, I think they, they, they allow us to expand enough to hold the complexity of life without becoming overwhelmed by it. And so a lot of people who work with psychedelics, they find meaning in actually confronting these, as we talked about earlier, these demons or these dark parts of, of themselves, these difficult parts of themselves, because Jung would also say like in the shadow is the gold. And so by facing and confronting these difficult and dark parts of ourselves, we actually can find gratitude. We can find a sense of awe for life. We get more meaning from life. Right. And I think that's a lot of what it comes back to life, um, especially in the last 30, 40 years. For a lot of people, it's just become more and more meaningless. It's like I show up, I do a job, I get paid, I go home, I watch Netflix, you know, and I rinse and repeat. Right. It's that's why kind of Fight the Club. Matrix. The Matrix. When you're like, why the Matrix hits such a nerve. It's why Fight Club hits such a nerve. It's like all the we're, we're sort of stuck in this. Uh, this the state of anhedonia is what I would call it, the state of gray, where everything is just blah, right? And so when people work with psychedelics, again, it opens them up to something greater. And in that opening, they then become more curious and interested about what, what, in what ways can I actually play with life, and in in what ways is there meaning in life? And 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 the the sort of final thing that I'll say about this is Nietzsche, who was this crazy German philosopher at the end of the nineteenth century talked about how, you know, with the advent of science, Christianity in particular was going to become less and less prominent. And he predicted this sort of century of nihilism and meaninglessness. And so a lot of people would say that even though science has taught us a lot, um, a lot of people are leaving religion and church as a result of that. And so people find themselves in this no man's land where they no longer believe in sort of the old precepts and the old ways of being because it doesn't match with a scientific worldview but science in and of itself can't explain some of these deeper states of mystery and awe and oneness that psychedelics facilitate and other states facilitate and so people are kind of like i've left christianity but i can't quite get to the next thing which is why am i actually here because if everything is just dead inert matter then why bother even living? And so people get stuck in this sort of nihilistic in between. And I think what psychedelics are helping people to do is like, okay, a lot of these things about religion are relevant or true. There's a lot of truth in them. And I don't need the dogma and I don't need the conditioning and I don't need the shame. I can have a spiritual life and a spiritual existence without having to, you know, be told that if I do a bad thing, I'm going to go to hell or whatever sure. that might be. It seems like a common thread of people who've had this experience is one is they feel like they have some connection to 
a creator and then like an interconnectedness of us all. Um, and that seems to be like a common thread of, of people's experiences. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I found out that not just psychedelic mushrooms, but mushrooms in general will basically like interconnect the forest through that mycelium, right? So if a, a tree or something needs nutrients, it'll help kind of interconnect that entire forest. And yeah, it's a mycelial yeah. network. It like is under the entire forest floor and the mycelial network essentially ensures that everything has all the nutrients that it needs. So it keeps the entire ecosystem in balance. And that's what I find so wild is that people who are taking these mushrooms have that feeling. They have that feeling of interconnectedness between every single person and everything that happens, which is kind of a wild, wild hippie kind of uh, thing. So, and it. people would say like indigenous people will say who have worked with psychedelics or plant medicines for thousands of years that there's an intelligence in the mushroom. There's an intelligence in ayahuasca and a huge part of our learnings as humans is to be respectful and in relationship with that non-human intelligence, that plant intelligence, and that there's a lot of lessons that it can teach us. And one of the core lessons is what you talked about, which is we are interconnected. And the more that we take care of the people in our lives, the more we are taken care of uh, in reciprocity. I love it. No more questions about penis envy from you? <laughs> Not for me. You, success you successfully got the guest, I think, to say your favorite word many times. We, we do... Uh, Sometimes we do other episodes where we talk about current issues in the fire service, and he's always picking the episodes that involve the penis. Penises? Well, listen, when so we do uh, episodes that go over like news stories in public safety, and there's yeah. no shortage of crazy people out there. It's nothing serious, or it's it's not. It it is definitely not uh, vetted news. So to speak, yeah, a lot of Daily Mail, not professional media. Uh, no Wall Street yeah, Journal. tabloid yeah. us. Yeah, there it is. The ta It's like it's like it's like public service tabloid news. Exactly. There you go. Behind it. So how can people? You have third wave. How can how can people kind of uh, actually? Why don't you kind of describe what that does and like how uh, people can get a hold of you. Yeah. So third wave is the thirdwave.co. It's an educational platform. We have guides. I, you know, I have hosted a podcast for seven years myself. We have a free community that folks can join the mushroom grow kit, which I mentioned, if folks want to grow their own mushrooms, we also have a, we didn't get into it in the episode, but we have a training program. So if anyone is a coach or practitioner or want to, wants to support others, let's say you've been working with mushrooms yourself quite a bit and you want to support others as they go through this experience. We have a training program for that. That's at uh, psychedeliccoaching.institute. And then if folks want to reach out to me directly, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, or I guess X is, is what it's called now at Paul Austin 3W. And if folks have questions, you know, anything that, that, that that's come up, just like shoot me a DM or a message and I'm pretty responsive on social as well. What's your fun. podcast? It's called the Psychedelic Podcast. Oh, well, if you want two dumb firefighters... <laughs> Who have no shit. That would be fun. To, I, I would love, we haven't had that angle yet in terms of exploring how mushrooms are being used in some of the, the public service sectors. So if you want to come on and talk about what's going on with firefighters and police officers, and obviously you don't need to divulge names or anything like that, but it could be uh, an interesting take because we haven't covered that at all in our, on our show. It's such like a, a weird thing where people are sick of, the options that they have, 
right? The I think the hey, I'm just gonna go get hammered after shift is kind of going out of vogue. You know, they don't want to pop hot on a test if they want to use marijuana. So they're they're in that no man's land of what can I use to try and deal with all the bullshit that we see? They just don't know what to do. That's why I thought it was so great that you came on is because we have guys using this and there really is no, I, I want to say protocol, I guess, but we don't, we just don't know. There's it. no like set way or really strong education on how do I navigate this? And totally. And so that was awesome that, um, that you had that. I know that there are some departments that are trying to work on getting ketamine protocols set for nice. their folks, but right. even still, there really is no agreed upon protocol for that. Uh, I've been working with a place called Mind Spa here in Denver. Did mine? Yeah, we just got to figure out a way to give us some more options because uh, suicide is by far the greatest killer of firefighters, and so we're trying to figure out a way that we can give some more options besides, "Hey, I'm going to go get shit faced," or you know, what, whatever else they're going to use to try and disengage. And this year, like or 2024, there's a group called Map which had a big conference in Denver earlier Huge. this year, they just submitted to the FDA approval for MDMA to treat PTSD. So they expect by the end of 2024 that MDMA will be medically available to treat PTSD. And I would imagine first responders, firefighters, I definitely know vets yeah. are sort of at the, they're going to work with the VA to roll it out through the VA. Awesome. So that will be a really great option because the number of police officers and first responders and firefighters that have PTSD is... It's everybody saying, you know, yeah. Um, I was a, in, I'm an instructor out at our fire Academy right now. And I gave, I have like a, a class basically that went through my stuff, talks about ketamine, talks about polyvagal theory, just to kind of give some other options to our people. And I, at the very end, I'm like, listen, this is coming. Like, I don't know when it's going to happen for you, but like you cannot get out of this without having some sort of damage because of it. And, that's not a reason not to do it, but you have to have like some sort of foundation or framework for, Hey, this is happening. I know it's happening, but now what do I do? Um, yeah. It's just, better to go in with the eyes wide open awareness totally. rather than, you know, like, Holy shit. Like, why am I so depressed or why am I having waking nightmares or like, yeah. And like people think that if you go do therapy or if you do psychedelics, yeah you're going to lose that level of intensity and you just right. don't, you, you don't, it's, it's almost enhanced. You feel like, well, there's nothing that can get me down. Cause now I have this framework to bounce back on when that does happen. Um, right. but they feel like you can't be like an operator if you don't, you know, if you, if you use that stuff. So I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Uh, it was great to meet you, Bo. You too. Enjoy the penis envy. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> He's had it forever. <laughs> forever. Oh, it's awesome.